Coming Back is a listener-supported podcast. To support the show and get exclusive access to podcast swag, giveaways, private grief hangouts, and more, head on over to patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. Support the show for as little as $1 per month and change or cancel your support at any time. Thank you so much for listening. Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after death, divorce, diagnosis, and more. On today's show, I'm talking to Catherine H. Murray, an author, teacher, and mother who lost her six-year-old son to leukemia. We're talking about her book, Now You See the Sky, and she's sharing her thoughts on Eastern medicine, horses, and how it takes a tremendous amount of courage to read. Also on the show today, I'm acknowledging the heartache of divorce, separation, and breaking up after a loved one dies. I'm Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide who speaks, writes, and teaches powerful truths on grief and loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to equip others with the knowledge to heal and remind them that they are not alone. Because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back. Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in to the show today. Just so all of you know, grief growers, there is still time to join me live for an hour-long grief support hangout on Monday, January 28th at 8 p.m. Central. If you'd like to join me and so many lovely listeners of this podcast for questions, book recommendations, grief advice, and so much more, all you have to do is pledge $1 or more over on patreon.com slash Shelby Every single month, I am delighted to make space for you in whatever loss you're facing for whatever grief is throwing your way at the moment. I sincerely hope that you'll consider joining us. You can find a link to my Patreon page where you can pledge and, uh, and join us on January 28th in the show notes. So today for the top of the show, uh, I want to acknowledge something that's coming later in today's episode. I had a chance to sit down with Catherine Murray and talk about the loss of her son and her book, Now You See the Sky, which is entirely about the loss of her son to leukemia. Uh, but at the very top of the show, and you'll notice I speak to this later in our interview, she refers to uh, her husband in Now You See the Sky as my husband at the time. And that's always indicative of to me that something has changed since then. It's one of those things that makes my ears perk up and say, oh, there's there's probably a story there. And as we got into it, as we continued the conversation, I unearthed and she, uh, she told me and will be telling all of you as well that her husband uh, and she divorced after about 10 years after the death of her son, partly and in some ways wholly because of the ways that they grieved. And what's interesting is that while she was telling the story, and we'll get into more depth of it later in the show today, is that I made a really quick and jumpy mental leap 
to a post that circulates the internet and I see it crop up every so often. And it goes something along the lines of like, if you really want to get to know somebody, watch them live through a terrible loss of a loved one, uh, witness them when they're broke and they have no money and witness them when they're job hunting or something along those lines. It's like the three big tragedies that can befall people in adulthood. And there's always some kind of funny response. Like if you really want to get to know someone, uh, murder their family, take away all of their money and uh, call in and get them fired at work or something like that. And so you sabotage them so you get to know who they really are. And there's like a weird morbid humor in that. Um, But there's also like a tiny kernel of truth in that you really see a different side of people or maybe a new side of people, I should say, nothing that's nothing that's deliberately hidden, but you see a different side of a partner when they lose someone that they love or you lose somebody that you love or you lose someone that both of you love together. And that was the situation that befell Catherine Murray and her husband is that they lost their middle son, their child, Chan. And the result of that loss, a result of that loss, was that they both grieved, but they grieved in different ways. And of course, you can certainly bring gender into this in some capacity. Uh, And so many articles love to tell you about the difference between men and women and how they grieve. Um, But I think there's, there's also more in that. And we discussed this later in the podcast episode too, is that grief is a highly, 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 highly personal event. It's a personal occurrence. And there's so much layered into it, whether it's the six grief myths, like I need to be alone in order to grieve. I'm not allowed to cry. I need to be strong for my family. Whether it's cultural uh, grief, East and West Coast and Eastern and Western cultures grieve differently. I mean, from North Carolina to California, but then even from the Americas to Asian cultures, African cultures, Middle Eastern cultures, they all show and express grief differently. And that comes through in relationships as well. And then there's grief generationally. So if you're in a different generation than your romantic partner, how you will express grief will look different as well. And all of those things can combine together to create distance or strain or inability to communicate or kind of proverbially or even literally look each other in the eyes anymore and recognize who you're looking at. And this is something that happened in my own world after I lost my mom is that my girlfriend of a little over a year, maybe a year and a half, we broke up within three months of my mother's death. And this was a woman who I had dated for a while in college. She and I weren't directly looking marriage in the face, but it was something that we both felt was coming down the pike. There was this soulmate level of of trust and intimacy there. And after the death of my mother, I became unrecognizable to myself. And I know from speaking to my girlfriend now years and years later, she felt like she lost a part of me when my mother died, which is very, very true. We know from previous episodes of coming back that we are mosaics of the people we love. And when the people we love die, we lose pieces of ourselves and vice versa. So when we die, the people around us will lose pieces of themselves as well. And we grief makes us different people. And there is such a loss and an additional grief. It's like a, a layering on or a piling on of grief when you lose a partner after you've just lost somebody you loved. 
And whether or not the, the loss of a partner comes immediately after, or like Catherine Murray comes 10 years after, it still does that weird grief thing where it, it harkens back, it calls back to, it calls back up these initial losses, the loss of a child, the loss of my mother, these, these losses that came before, these losses that came first, these losses that are almost in a weird twisted way at the root of a relationship, even though my girlfriend and I didn't get together because I lost my mother. The primary reason that she and I broke up is that I could not cope with being in a relationship as I was grieving my mother. And whether or not it was the right decision for us at the time, whether or not either of us regret it now into the future is kind of a moot point because it was something that needed to happen. And I'm so uh, excited is not the word I want to use, but I'm very fascinated and heartbroken and intrigued by this additional story, occurrence of losing a romantic partner after somebody that you love died, whether it's a, a shared loss, like loss of a child, or if it's an individual loss, maybe loss of a parent on one side or the other. Um, there's so much that comes into play here. And Catherine and I really, really are going to dig deep into this. So I don't want to reveal, reveal too much. But I do want to let you know, grief growers, that if this is something that you've experienced or are in the process of experiencing, you are not alone. Grief puts a tremendous weight over a relationship. If this is something you'd like to speak on further, come to a group of people who are able to speak on this with you, including me. I would love always, Grief Growers, if you would join us for the live hangout, which is happening on January 28th. You can find out more about that on patreon.com slash Shelby for Scythia, or you can always join us too in the Grief Growers Garden, which is my private Facebook group for listeners of this show and people who have lost. It's a super beautiful, supportive community of people just going through it together. Next up, my conversation with Catherine Murray, who lost her son when he was just six years old. Catherine Murray is an author, poet, teacher, and writing guide from Portland, Maine, where she lives with her two sons and lectures and leads workshops on healing through writing, listening, and trauma resolution. Her expertise on healing informs her work with healthcare providers, private clients, and her immigrant and refugee students. Catherine earned her BA from Harvard University and completed her MFA in creative writing at University of Southern Maine's Stone Coast Writing Program. Venues for her lectures and workshops have included Harvard University, Seattle Children's Hospital, Hasbro Children's Hospital, Maine State Prison, and the University of New England. Her memoir, Now You See the Sky, released in November of 2018, was selected to launch Akashic Books' Gracie Bell imprint curated by Anne Hood. Gracie Bell Books focus on the topic of loss to provide help and healing for those living with grief. Catherine, I'm so thrilled to have you on the show today. Uh, I tell my grief growers, the listeners of this podcast, that I get sent a lot of books. A lot of authors come on uh, and would like to be on the show, would like to have me read their books, would like to have them recommended. And this is one that particularly struck me because it was less of a how-to and more of a more of a memoir, more of a very, very deep dive into your own personal experience. And I'm so 
glad I got to have it like in my backpack, like carry it around with me. It felt like something that was very precious. Uh, and so I'm so excited to have you on to share your story today. And I will ask you to start where we start all of our interviews on coming back. And that is to share your lost story with us today. All right. Um, well, my story started um, a long time ago. I, I had uh, moved from the U.S. to Thailand to teach, and I fell in love and married a local man, and we had three sons and just had a really idyllic life. And then suddenly our middle son, just after his fifth birthday, was diagnosed with leukemia. Um, so we were told that we should immediately go for treatment in Seattle, which we did, and um and the doctors there told us that he had a very rare form, which required intensive chemo and bone marrow transplants and transplant. And then um, he he finally died um, nine months after the transplant. So between the transplant and his death was an interesting time because the um, the doctors in Seattle told us that um, once. Uh, someone relapses after having a bone marrow transplant that their chances of survival are pretty much nil and they expected him to last no more than a couple months. Um, and I thought, oh, you know, I was of course devastated. Um, and I thought, well, we need to do what the doctors say and, you know, be prepared to, for palliative care and the morphine and, you know, whatever he needs until he dies. And his father, uh, my son's father, my husband at the time, um, had a different approach. And he said, no, we're going to go back home to Thailand and we're going to really fight for his life. And we're going to use traditional, you know, Eastern medicine and um, meditation and vitamins and do the best we can for him. And, and uh, my son, his name was Chan. Um, he had grown up in Thailand, so he really wanted to go home and, and be where he felt like um, he, he really belonged and be with family. So after a bit of a struggle initially, I, an internal struggle for me, you know, to, to realize that actually it made sense to fight for him. We did go back to Thailand and, um, and moved up to a little tiny cabin where, um, we lived because we thought it was the place that had the most, well, it was, it was a tiny cabin up on a mountaintop, um, in a very remote part of the country. Because we thought that something toxic in the environment had caused his illness, and since Western medicine no longer had any any help for us, we thought maybe you know if we lived in a pristine place, perhaps his immune system would bounce back. So those last um, we were there about nine months, and um, and then he finally did. He he had nine pretty good months, and then he did finally die um, in our arms in 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 our little cabin. Um, so, uh, yeah, just that, that those nine months were a pretty intense time for us. And, um, and, it, and even though, you know, I knew he had a terminal illness, we really felt like it was important to just to not ever give up on him. So we, we really did keep, keep fighting and we, we never knew when the end was going to come, of course. Um, but it did. And, and that was, that was the loss, you know, was losing an amazing little boy that, who who fought really hard on his on his part as well. I think the first direction that I want to go with this in the interview is it sounds like this is a different kind of lost story than we normally have on coming back mm -hmm. in that there is a 
conflict between Eastern and Western ideals in how medicine works, how illness works, how we die. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the guests that come on coming back are either uh, here in the US or in Westernized society. And so there's mm-hmm. this perception of illness treatment, if treatment fails, hospice, death, and then mm-hmm. memorial services or funerals or things of that nature. So can you speak more on how your time in Thailand changed not only your perspective on illness and medicine, but maybe death and dying as well? Mm-hmm. So I feel fortunate that I uh, had lived in Thailand for a good number of years before my son got sick. I think it was a good 10 years or so. Um, and had really, you know, had been, uh, you know, the man that I married was a local Thai person. So I was really within living within his extended family. And um, I was able to learn a lot about the culture, the local culture, about Buddhism, which is the national religion of Thailand. Um, and through those years, I developed uh, a bit of an understanding, of course, it's, you know, not nearly what I would like it to be, but um, of this idea of mindfulness and being present and um, taking life moment by moment and being very aware of the temporary nature of all things, you know, good and bad. Um, and that, that, you know, where there's life, there's death. Um, so it doesn't mean that I was better prepared for his death in any way. I mean, his death was still a horrible experience for me, you know, still devastating. Um, but, but throughout his illness, I feel like I had so much, um, fear and worry and I mean, really sheer terror that I was going to lose this person that I loved so much. I feel like having lived there and having practiced meditation and mindfulness, at least I had the knowledge that one way to handle that much emotion and that much fear and that much worry and anxiety was to try to do my best to just continue to stay present. Like just sort of, I thought of it as like nailing my feet to the floor, you know, just like stop thinking about the future, stop imagining horrible, you know, like his funeral and all terrible hole that would be left in our lives if he dies I would remind myself nope that's not where you need to go you need to be right here right now what's happening right now in the room in your body you know what does he need what do your other children need so to me um I you know I'm grateful for having had a little experience there um and you know and again that I think that really helped me get through that really hard time um in terms of illness and death and healing, um, I also realized, and you know, I think coming from the Western experience of having the oncologist say, "Your son has a terminal illness. He's in relapse. This is it. We're not. He's going to die. You know, there's nothing we can do. Um, this is the end." I had to learn to um, to release the authority that they they had i mean that that i west i think in the west that doctors in general are invested with so much authority you know we we just believe Mm -hmm. that they know the answer and i had to really teach myself um in those months after that diagnosis or prognosis that nobody knows exactly what's going to happen nobody can tell the future that that our bodies are renewing themselves every second you know we're always creating new cells and new you know we, we don't live in the same body we did a year ago, really. 
Um, so I think I say that because I feel like the Thai perspective, traditionally doctors don't have, um, I mean, traditionally I think people have more of a sense of the mystery of things. Um, so I had to kind of learn that I had to kind of remind myself we only have today. He could get well. He could die. There's nowhere to know either way. And I don't have to know. I just have to be present with who he is now, what's happening right now. Um, yeah. So that's that's one answer. Is there more? Well, I'm, I'm picking up on in the earliest pieces of your story, it sounded like Chan was the final decision maker on whether or not you went home. And I'm interested hmm. to know how much his perspective weighed on your decisions as parents on whether to continue the fight, to continue trading, to stay in Seattle, to go back to Thailand. Cause there was, there's a wrestling energetically happening in that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think, you know, when we were in Seattle, um, the doctors were pretty, pretty clear about um, saying that, that there really wasn't anything we could do for him beyond palliative care. Um, you know, they sort of, painted pretty scary pictures of how much pain he in suffering, how much more suffering he might have if we tried to continue to treat. Um, so I think I, I, we had the idea from them that further treatment would be not a good idea, but whether or not to stay in Seattle with the safety and the comfort and the familiarity of the hospital and the Western doctors and the very, um, you know, advanced technology and the comfort of being in the West rather than going back to Thailand and trying something different that, yeah, that definitely was a little, a struggle. Um, but really not for long. I think it was just so clear to me that that Chan needed to be where Chan wanted to be and that he had wanted to be home. He had missed his cousins. He had missed his grandmother. He had missed, you know, he, he had said he wanted to get horses and, um, that was something that we knew we could do in Thailand. And, I think we just felt like we could give him more of the life he wanted by going back home. So that's what made us decide to do that. One of the most impactful parts of your book for me is John's connection with the horses in Thailand, especially I'm doing a spoiler alert in the finishing chapters where they had their own kind of nuzzly horse nose way of saying goodbye to his body And I'm getting chills right now because that's something I think that even nature and animals are so in tune with our processes as humans. Um, I I don't know. That was just a moment that really, really struck me in the reading of your book is his really, especially with horses, something about horses seemed to really stand out to him. So I'm wondering um, in, I guess, when did that start? There seems to be this uh, intense connection in life for him with these animals. Oh yeah. That was kind of funny. So when, um, when he was in the hospital in Seattle, he was having inpatient chemotherapy for five weeks at a time. And he wasn't allowed to see any other kids play with anybody else. His brothers could come, but you know, it was very contained time. So, um, I became someone who kind of browsed on the shelves of the video uh, you know, display at the, or, you know, the videos that were available, video library at the, on the oncology, children's oncology ward. Um, and I picked up the Black Stallion. Oh, good movie. Oh, great movie. It had a huge impact on him. I mean, because of course the story is about, you know, this boy and this horse and the boy is struggling through something really life-threatening and 
terrible and difficult and you know surviving the loss of his parents and and being marooned on this island and it's the horse that that helps him you know that saves his life his life and the, the relationship between the two of them is what keeps the boy going so that really impacted um Chan and and in fact after the movie he kept asking everybody have you seen the movie the black scallion because <laughs> 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 he'd never heard of the word scallion only scallion so that was funny but um, yeah, so ever since that, he just he wanted his own black stallion. So he kept telling us when uh, there was a Make-A-Wish came to see us in Seattle and uh, they asked John what he wanted, what was his wish, what was the one thing that he would want. His first answer was a black stallion. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> yeah, which they weren't able to grant, but but we knew when we went back to Thailand, we'd be able to find find him a horse or two. So. That's how that started. I'm curious, this is uh, something that's been probing in my brain, is when you were first introducing your law story, you referred to the man that you married in Thailand as your then-husband. So I'm wondering if Chan's death had an impact on your relationship and kind of what the state of your hearts were at that time and how that's extended into the future. Oh, yeah, it absolutely had an impact. I think. we just had a really different, different ways of dealing with grief. And I think, um, for me, after Chan died, I found myself very quickly, um, having a sense that, um, of, of my heart, uh, losing its softness of my heart becoming hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could see it in the way I, I related to my children. You know, I could see myself just being irritable and angry and impatient and, and I had a sense that that was not that was not something I could allow to happen. Um, and for me, I don't know, you know, as an American, as a woman, as someone who'd had experience in peer counseling, it was clear to me that I needed to be sure to grieve really intentionally, to really feel the loss that I had experienced, and process it, and cry, and rage, and scream, and you know, whatever my body needed to do, but it was important that I, that I not run away from the grief and the pain. Um, and so I did, I was, I was very intentional about it. I, you know, I knew that I needed, you know, sometimes I would get caught up and want to just stay really busy or want to knit or want to, you know, chop wood or, you know, exercise or, you know, none of those things are destructive, but I could tell when I was doing them in a sort of, um, obsessive way, you know, in a way that was keeping me from stopping and letting the grief actually move through me, um, as painful as that was. So that was the way I grieved. Um, and you know, my then husband did it differently. He was from a completely different gender, a completely different cultural world, um, a different religious outlook, you know, everything. Um, and what what I experienced was that um, he to me I felt like he became more contracted and retreated and um, I felt eventually there was just too much distance. Um, that's my interpretation. Who knows? You know, no one can ever know what's really going on in another person's heart. But I would say that was my experience of it, and I think you know that. So that ultimately led to our divorce was being separate like that. I think this is more common 
in the grief sphere than people let on is relationships transformed, torn apart, Mm -hmm. Um, even slowly distance. I get this image of like boats drifting away from each other uh, over the ocean by grief, because grief is this force that acts within us in our own ways. And yet at the same time, grief is a relationship that we can choose to, like you did to intentionally engage in or distance from. Um, But grief is a very, very, very intimate thing. And yet it's also a universal occurrence. Um, So thank you for sharing that wisdom with us today, because it can't have been easy to have lost your middle child and then to have that energetic, that drifting of losing your husband as well. Yeah. And I was, I was really surprised um, when we did divorce at the extent and the amount of the uh, grief over our son's death that brought up for me. I mean, I, I hadn't realized that the divorce itself would trigger so much of the old grief because it was a good, I think it was 10 years almost after his death that we divorced. And um, I thought, you know, you, with grief, you often think that you've moved past a certain stage or, you know, you, you think, okay, I'm good now. And then, you know, you get, <laughs> And that really blindsided me. I just, I had no idea that it would be so intensely painful and and such a grief experience to divorce. You know, I thought it was more like, all right, I've made this really hard decision that's going to be hard on my family and we kind of move through this hard thing. But I just didn't realize that it would be such an experience of grief. And I, you know, but I also think ultimately feeling the intensity of the grief throughout the you know, the divorce, the year or two after the divorce also really helped me move through and complete in a way, um, the grieving over my son. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. The word that's coming to me is sure. Yes. Because oftentimes, um, I'm going to use a word that often comes up, uh, in grief recovery, which is re-grieving. And so new griefs can prompt re-grieving of previous losses because they never truly leave us. There's always like a 1% that's still lingering. And so it makes perfect sense. I mean, I hosted a a grief group in Chicago and this woman uh, said that the death of her grandmother triggered a grief for her cat that she lost five years before. And the death of her cat was like the most powerful loss in her life because it was her only friend growing up. And, mm. uh, and so it's interesting that as she continued to live on, I mean, 20, 30 years after this cat's death, she was, as she was grieving new losses, she was re-grieving prior losses, especially this cat or this initial loss as well. So that, mm-hmm. I mean, my brain is totally making that connection. Um, but when you phrase it that way of like, of course, a divorce would bring up the grief from losing your son, not only because this was a child that you'd made together. Um, Mm -hmm. and your relationship was so intertwined with his death. Um, but because it is another powerful grief moment in the timeline of your life. And I think, I think also, you know, it's, it's like when you've lost a child and there's a consideration of divorce that there's some, I think for a long time I had this sense of like, well, I can't, um, it's like an added burden of, you know, you know, my family has already experienced so much pain. I can't possibly add more pain and I can't possibly, um, um, you know, somehow like this is the only person who knows what I've been through, Mm -hmm. you know, 
as the father of my son, this this is this man is the only person who who knows my story completely and who has experienced it like I did. Um, and I think it took me a long time to be able to realize just because we were ending the relationship, just because there was a divorce, it didn't negate everything that had happened. It didn't mean our whole life hadn't happened and we hadn't had this beautiful experience and this beautiful family. It's like, I don't know, it's, it's kind of hard to articulate, but it's, there was a moment where I said, oh, you know, it's, everything still happened. This doesn't invalidate the life we had together. It's just a change in, in how we're going to do it going forward. But it took me a long time to kind of realize that. And, it, and once I did, I felt like, oh, okay, it's okay. It's not, it doesn't diminish or erase Chan in any way because, you know, the fact that I'm getting divorced. Yes. I think it's so important that you're saying this and thank you again for putting it into words this way, because hearing you speak about it, there's like a societal perception of selfishness and divorce and like choosing to detonate the relationship. And there's also like, well, this is the only person who knows me and my grief this well, how will I ever be able to find solace in another human again? And then there's the societal perception of like, you know, they've already been through so much. Let's just throw another torch on the fire essentially. Um, And so I, I can, totally hear you and understand how, yeah, it takes a minute to recalibrate to this does not invalidate Chan's life. This does not invalidate the fact that our relationship existed. Uh, and this human will still exist in the world who has seen me through the most difficult loss of my life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that's so incredible. Think, you know, when often when I teach, you know, when I talk about grief and I teach workshops and give lectures, I, I'm really always try to say explicitly grief doesn't just mean someone in your life has died you know i think especially divorce is it's a huge grieving experience it's it's, some people say it's worse than a death right because it's so much messier in a way um so i think it's important for people to give themselves credit and compassion and space you know to to process a divorce with as much um you know love and compassion for themselves as if someone has died because it's it's about it's just grief. It's all grief. It is. And that's something that we strive to repeat over and over and over again here on Coming Back is that grief is not just death. It is the end of or change in what was normal. So this could be anything mm-hmm. from, you know, death, divorce, diagnosis to, you know, losing a job or having to make a major move, but something that has changed your life mm-hmm. permanently, irreversibly forever. And you can't, you can't ever go back to the before. Um, there's just the after mm-hmm. that you are forced to live in. Uh, and it can be grief mm-hmm. by choice, whether it's a divorce that's initiated or a grief not by choice, like a like a death. Um, so yes, grief comes in a lot of different configurations in the world. Um, I want to start moving in the direction of how your book, Now You See the Sky, came into the world. I wrote down the question, why a book of all the ways to tell your story? Or why even the need to tell your story in the first place? That's a great question. Yeah. So, well, I've always, I've always loved to journal. Um, I've just always loved to write and write poetry. And, um, but when Sean got really sick, when we had that last, those last nine months, you know, when we left Western medicine and, and we're really on our own to make decisions about his care and, um, 
there was so much anxiety for me and stress and, you know, the pain of seeing his pain and worry that, that journaling just became essential. It was, for me, it was the way I processed all the hard feelings I was going through was by sitting down and just, I mean, and I, and I really had to tear myself away from John because he didn't want me to go off and write. He wanted me to sit with him and, you know, rub his back and read to him. And, but sometimes I just knew I had to get away and take care of myself. And the way I did that was through journaling. So, um, and, and also after he died, I, I needed journaling. It was absolutely essential in dealing with my grief and trying to, again, stay present for my family because I had two other little boys, um, so when I felt really overwhelmed um, and just like I couldn't get out of bed or I couldn't, you know, take them to the park or I couldn't smile or I couldn't cook or, you know, I couldn't go to work, I would write. I would sit down and I would just say, okay, what's going on here? You know, and I would let myself just have all my feelings through writing, you know, and I would just sort of pour pour everything out onto the keyboard. Um so there was that. And then, you know, after he died, of course, I didn't want the world to lose him. I wanted the world to know my little boy. Um, and I, I, I knew it was a beautiful story, you know, his, who he was, I, I wanted to tell the world, you know? Um, so, and at first, you know, that was my, the initial mo- motivation to write the story. And then as it went on, it became more about, um, you know, as I healed more and more, I really felt less inclination and less urgency to, to tell the world about him. And it became more that I wanted to share with the world, um, the, the way that, um, I think, you know, that the idea that people can heal, that you can live through something really hard like that and then end up, um, as a, as a healed person person, you know, that you can, you can heal from, from grief, from pain, from intense loss. Um, and, and I wanted, I wanted to share that with people. I wanted to share, you know, the way that I, um, the tools that I used to get through this and, um, yeah, that's, so that's, I'd say why the book. I think that's so, mm. As you're saying that, I wanted people to know that it was possible. That registers on a deep level with me because I know in the midst of my own grief, losing my mother, I'm like, this is not possible. I'm never coming back from Mm. this. I cannot, Mm. there's not even a pinprick of light in my world. Um, And the discovery, I spoke about this on the last episode, actually, is that the discovery of books is what kind of started poking holes of light in the dark. I'm like, Oh my God, somebody's done this before. And I don't, you know, and it's not that I was grievers aren't ignorant to the fact that, that success stories, success stories, quote unquote. Um, but, but that's, they're not ignorant to the fact that stories of coming back exist in the world, but that reality of being healed or like society says, like moving on or getting over like blah, blah, blah. That seems so far out of reach that Mm. just knowing that it's, possible is enough. And so I I just absolutely mm-hmm. love how you phrase that. That speaks so true to, I think, what I and so many others faced in the midst of our grief and for a lot of listeners are, of our show are facing right now is, I don't know how I'm going to do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and which is mm-hmm. why books are so important. We don't necessarily need to know how to, we just need to know that you did. And I think also, you know, that's, I think that there's, 
such there are there's such a glut of how-to books. You know, when someone dies, people want to help, and you know, I think we've all seen these books that are how-to and and psychological and step-by-step and formulaic. And for most of us, that just doesn't apply. You know, when you're in the midst of really deep grief, you can't even begin to think about, you know, following some step-by-step program about how to feel better. But what does apply, I think, you know, is is literature, you know, it's it's hearing people's real stories and really, um, you know, knowing that you're not the only one who's going through this. And as writers, you know, we can articulate a pain and experience that a lot of people can't articulate so that you know then then these books become really essential and i think you know that's why it's so i'm just so pleased to that my book um is launching Anne hood's imprint which is um it's called the gracie bell imprint and it's completely going to be books focusing on on grief and loss so books like mine and um and akashic press and Anne hood you know Anne hood wrote um comfort um, a journey through grief, I believe, about her yes. daughter's death. Um, yes. She had a daughter named Grace who died um, when she was five. And uh, anyway, so Anne Hood is is really brilliant, I think, to have decided that we need what people need is a line of books that are that are beautiful stories of of grief and loss. What I love is that alongside your book, which I received in the mail, there was like a little printout that this was the first book being launched in the the imprint series and that it was exclusively focused on grief. But what I liked uh, that Anne said on one of the, like the third or fourth page was that she's like, I needed to do this because as a writer, so many publishers have responded to me and said, nobody wants to publish books that are so sad. And I'm like, mm-hmm. so sad. This is reality. So many of our, us are out here facing mm-hmm. the hardest and darkest moments of our lives. We There is a desperate thirst, I think, for written word and conversations and resources for people who are grieving. But it's funny because when you look at like the publishing or the money-making side of it, there's not money to be found in publishing grief books. It's like politics, mm-hmm. how-to, self-help uh, mm-hmm. even like celebrity memoirs or, you know, coloring books, like things like that. There's a lot of money there. Um, but, uh, but as you know, as a grief writer, and as I know, as a grief writer, the, the money is not the point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I really like that you said a conversation, you know, because I think, you know, I get so many responses from readers and, you know, just thanking me for, for being able to, to, you know, to, for them to share the journey and, um, I had one recently, actually a woman in Latvia, um, through a friend who said that um, it was so helpful her helpful for her, her her daughter has recently died, um, to be in conversation with me as the writer. Even though, you know, it she just meant as she was reading through the book, it felt like having a conversation with another mother who was experiencing this, this deep loss. So I like the way you I like that phrase of, you know, books are like having a conversation. Yeah, I think that's one of my favorite parts about them. And for me, as somebody who often prefers to text over getting on the phone, I'm like, oh, I can like speak to you or have you speak to me without. Sometimes it takes a lot of energy as a griever to sit in the same room with another human, but to have the indirectness of a book mm-hmm. is is really powerful. It's like a friend that's not in the room, but is still a tremendous source of comfort and and tools and just like this is kind of a heavy word, but like higher wisdom, like you've been on the road before. 
you know, you, you're reading about someone who's who's been through what you've been through in a way. And I think the other thing that's so important is, you know, it's, it's funny, it's almost paradoxical because people write to me and say, oh my God, thank you so much for this beautiful book. It's just fantastic. You know, I just sobbed for hours and it's like, you're thanking me because, you know, and you're sobbing it, you know, I think to initially people might wonder, well, why is that a good thing? But I think, you know, as we know, it's, it's just so healing. It's so healing to be able to access that well of grief that we all have, even if we haven't lost anyone, you know, through death or divorce. I mean, we still, there's still grief, you know, just growing up is grief. Um, so I think it's just, that's the great thing about books like it, like this is that it allows you to access that, that pain that always needs to be processed. You know, that it, I just feel like it's always a good chance. Anytime you can cry, anytime you can release, you're moving forward in a good way. Um, you know, when I, when I give workshops or talks or readings, I always tell people when you, you know, if you cry during this, I totally welcome that. You know, I think it's, it's good. The more tears you get out, the better. And I also am clear, it's clear to me that I'm not making you sad. My story isn't making you sad. My story is allowing you to access your own sadness that needs to come out and needs to be expressed and needs to be healed. So to me, that's, that's the other, you know, thing that's that's good about reading these books. That takes quite a bit of courage to read. Um, I think, you know, as you say, there's not a lot of money, um, you know, more money in coloring books and celebrity, you know, memoirs because there aren't you know, as many readers who have the bravery to go to these places. That is just the perfect insight for grievers who are reading: is that it takes courage to read. It takes a tremendous amount to pick up a book and have kind of a faint idea of what's inside it and be like, all right, I'm signing up for this. To be willing to, you know, to open up to that extent. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, This seems like a perfect place to let listeners of the show know where they can find Now You See the Sky, as well as interact with you through your grief workshops, online, et cetera, wherever you like to be found. Mm-hmm. So I, my website is www.catherinehmurray.com. And Catherine is spelled a little differently. It's C-A-T-H-A-R-I-N-E-H-Murray-M-U-R-R-A-Y.com. That's the website. And you can, I'd love to hear from everybody um, on the website. There's a contact page and there's places to order the book. The book is, of course, on Amazon, IndieBound, Barnes & Noble, uh, your local bookstore, um, any of those places. And it's also an audio book. I did the recording so you get to hear me read the audio, um, which was quite a pleasure. I love doing that. So, and I also, um, I love coming to speak. I was just in Seattle recently, um, doing grand rounds for the hospital actually where Chan, Chan was treated. And I was in Rhode Island, uh, speaking to the doctors there. And, and I, I love, coming out and meeting people. So I'd love to, I'd love to come meet people wherever they are and come and speak and hear their stories. Catherine, thank you so much for coming on, coming back today and sharing your story and honoring Chan and talking about grief that lives on in its own way. Well, it's my pleasure, Shelby, and I, and I really appreciate the work that you do and I'm looking forward to hearing more from you.
So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. Thank you so much to Catherine H. Murray for coming on the show to talk about her beautiful book, Now You See the Sky. Catherine came back by journaling and by using Buddhist techniques to figuratively nail her feet to the floor to stay present with her dying son. You can find a link to Catherine's website where you can get at your own copy of Now You See the Sky in the show notes. For grief support beyond this podcast, go to patreon.com slash Shelby for Scythia, where you can pledge for as little as $1 per month and receive instant access to a monthly grief support hangout with me. This month's hangout, of course, is on January 28th at 8 p.m. Central Time. If you like this episode, you can also support Coming Back by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and by telling a friend about Coming Back, because you never know what someone you love is going through. Thank you to Mr. Addie Goldstein, who composed our theme music. You can find me on Facebook at Shelby for Scythia, Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Grief Guide Shelby for Scythia, or simply shelbyforscythia.com. If you'd like to leave a question or comment for a future show, leave a voicemail or text 312-725-3043 or email me at shelby at shelbyforscythia.com. As always, my dear grief growers, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you today. I see you, I am proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world, and I love you. Because even through grief, we are growing.